0: Listener emails on episode 307 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. Did you get a chance to view the conjunction this past week, Shane?
1: I did. Yeah. Just naked eye. Um, My wife and I were out playing pickleball, actually. <laughs> our our game time had concluded and on our way home, uh, yeah, they were perfectly positioned in the West. And uh, I don't know, I'd say probably about 20-ish degrees up, maybe 30, somewhere in that range. And yeah, very prominent, very beautiful. How about yourself?
0: Yeah. So this is the conjunction of uh, Jupiter and Venus. They, they got within I, I think for some it was like a uh, 0.1 of a degree. So they were extremely close. Like your finger at arm's length is going to be about a, uh, a degree or more. And they were just a 10th of, of that distance. Um, didn't see it on Wednesday. I saw it, I think the night before or two nights before. And then I saw it on Thursday and mm-hmm. took a good look at it on Friday with the, uh, FS, uh, 60 out in the driveway. And, uh, it was uh it was a, a pretty neat thing to be able to see. I couldn't see the phase of Venus though, so it must be close to full or something, and I was looking over a neighbor's house and and just hauled the telescope out and set it up, so i don't I don't know maybe my scene just wasn't good enough to see the phase or I also kept the power pretty low, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I saw it Thursday night, and I would say separation that night was maybe three degrees or so. I'm guessing I I would have to reference like sky safari, uh, the close, the, the real close night, I think may have been Wednesday night. Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we were pretty cloudy that night, unfortunately. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's too bad. That would have been a neat thing to see them that close. But, uh, I did see some photographs of, of the conjunction on the Wednesday night from people located in other areas and yeah, it was quite nice.
0: Yeah, I was actually over at a, uh, a listener's place on uh, on Thursday evening, uh, looking at a mountain. And afterwards, he he sent me a photo. Um, it was Ian? Is his name? And he sent me a photo of the uh, of Jupiter, and it was just getting covered over by his neighbor's house. And but you can still see the moon sticking up, and the sky wasn't totally dark. It was sort of this um, kind of really off, beautiful dark purple kind of color. Almost looked like artificial in a way but it was uh, just a spectacular photo. He he's a photographer and uh and uh, has upgraded to a lighter mount. So uh <laughs> so that's what I was doing on Thursday night, which was in- interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you had shared a, a link uh to ZWO or ZWO camera site uh with his photographs and he's yeah. he's quite talented. He's he's quite good at that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's taken some great photos of, um, uh, actually one of the ones that I was most familiar with before meeting him, um, was the, uh, one of the Lagoon Nebula M8 that was published in Sky News Magazine, um, a couple of years back, maybe in 2018 or something like that. And, uh, yeah, I remember looking at that image and thinking, wow, like that really captured a lot of the, uh, very faint and delicate nebulae and star clouds, uh, in the region. So, so anyway, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was kind of neat to get over there and to, uh, yeah, to take a look at, uh, at a mount and uh, yeah, see, see what might be able to do with that. Yeah. So what mount were you looking at? The az uh, AZEQ 6 which is the same mount that many of our uh, listeners use and Mark Radici, who we had on the show last week, uses. And my interest in that mount is that I want to be able, or I'm curious in mounting two telescopes, but Primarily, the big thing with that mount is um, it can handle pretty good capacity. It's a fairly heavy-duty mount, and um, it can operate, or you know, you can just set it to operate in uh, Alta zemuth mode um, or AZ mode, which is uh, my preference for observing, uh, and it does tracking. So I can put it in AZ mode, and basically, um, it'll work just like uh, a super souped up version of my, um, uh, AZ GTI. And so that's, <laughs> but that's very, souped I, very souped up, very souped up, very souped up. What so, What is the capacity of that mount in AZ configuration? So it's, you know, it's not really clear cut. The capacity of the mount is stated at being 44 pounds. Um, it kind of, to me, it kind of looks like Um, people have mounted all kinds of weird and wacky configurations on it, Mm -hmm. but in, in, um, AZ mode, it, it seems like it's probably around 50 to 60 odd pounds. And I've even seen people loading it up with, um, somebody had 66 pounds of like big 12 inch reflector and, um, all kinds of uh, imaging gear and that on it and said that it, it still worked well that apparently, um, The challenge with loading it up with a lot of gear is that the tripod, um, isn't set to handle much over about 30 pounds or so from what I've been able to gather. Um, and so, you know, in, in combination with that mount. And so I actually didn't, he wanted, he wanted the tripod. So I didn't take the tripod as part of the deal. And, um, my, my intent is to put it up on a, on a pier and, and hopefully, uh, in my observatory. That's, that's my long-term plan. And yeah, so we were able to, to eventually work out a deal though. When I went to send the, I I looked at the mount, I was pretty sure, you know, I I know I've wanted this mount for a while, had a couple hesitations on it. One is that, um, I knew that the mount was going to have to be regreased because our weather here is just going to be too cold. And if I'm leaving it out or even, even like leaving it in my cottage, um or cabin it's going to be too cold in there and it's the the grease that comes with the skywatcher just isn't going to work that well in our temperatures mm-hmm. and he'd already regreased it he'd already uh done a couple things he sourced a silicone um very flexible uh, power cable for it. Um, so that works down to minus 30, he said. And there, there's a few other little things that he's done as well, replace the bearings and for cold weather bearings and and that kind of stuff. So it was stuff that I was kind of lamenting. I was gonna, if I did get that mount new, it's a lot of money and I'd have to go and get some work done to it. And uh and that work's already been done. So it's that's a bit of a relief there. It's it's well used, though. I mean, he's taken tons and tons of photos with it, um, which is great. And, uh, and for visual, it will just be, uh, totally fine. He's, he's upgraded to one of the, uh, ZWO, uh, harmonic mounts, uh, he mm-hmm. said. And, and so it's, it's a much lighter piece of gear for, for his astrophotography purposes. Okay. Yeah. Well,
1: I'm excited to see this mount, you know, operate. And I, I think this one will serve you very well. Um, and it's great that he, you know, being, you know, living in the same city, he's adapted it to our environment. So like you said, it saves you a few, a few extra tasks there.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and, and it was a good deal. I, you know, um, I I was a little bit reluctant to pay full price and then have to, you know, pay full price and then kind of have to rip it apart and do some work to it. I'm probably going to be violating the the warranty on it right off the hop just Mm -hmm. to make sure that it works in our environment. So it's kind of like, well, it, it's not really going to matter that much, uh, any, any way that it's a used mount. And then, and then he, you know, he's taking good care of it, but he's used it lots. So it's a, it's a mount that's been used. And I think for visual, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be pretty good, and I'm just going to put my five-inch mount on it um, at least to start. And then it does have a higher carrying payload capacity, but uh, this is a mount that uh, that's been proven in the field, like this very specific mount, to work down into the negative uh, thirty range. So I know that I can uh, leave it set up in a in a very uh, minimalistic telescope shelter and and not have to worry about it as much because one, I got it used, and two, it's already been modified to work in these cold climates
1: yeah that's perfect
0: cool and then wade, so wade we're gonna read wade uh, one of wade's uh emails here, but uh he got the uh uh, Azeq6. Do you want to read his email and then we'll talk about that?
1: Sure. Uh, Wade said, hi, Chris and Shane. I recently had a birthday and decided it was a great excuse to pull the trigger on what is essentially my dream telescope. I just received my C11 XLT and Azeq6 GT Pro. Uh, 11 inches of dew-proof goodness and uh, with the heater dew ring and a mount that can use a second scope as a counterweight. Mm -hmm. Uh, The total package is also physically smaller than my eight-inch daub when packed down, which makes transportation easier. Uh, The other telescope I will be attaching to the mount is my 102 EDF7, which I used to think was a big, heavy scope but looks quite small next to the 11-inch Cassegrain. yeah those uh, those 11-inch Cassegrains are quite large um I've briefly used it, and all signs point to this being an absolute winner of a combo. I'm still getting it set up how I want uh, how I want it, so I can update you once I've done some serious observing with it. By the way, I chose to get the black and silver Saxon version instead of the white and green SkyWatcher version uh, just for the looks. Uh, Saxon is the Australian distributor for SkyWatcher, so the mounts are identical apart from the color. I can get uh, both here, but just prefer the black. I know you're thinking about this combo, Chris. So, if you want any particular photos, measurements, or info, just ask away.
0: I think I think he actually sent this when I was, you know, talking to Ian about the mount, and I was busy between work and the podcast and everything else I do. I had actually missed Wade's email, <laughs> so it was funny. So then I I uh, located it there the other night and actually emailed Wade back. And we've been going back and forth quite a bit and he's has a pretty good handle on how the Mount works and he's making some minor modifications. So he was showing me some of the stuff that, that he's done and and that I might like to do. So there's some neat things you can do with this Mount. Um, the one uh, little video he sent me uh, in the middle of my night last night and, and sort of uh, in the evening for him is you can run your power cable directly th- through the polar axis when you're in uh, AZ mode. Mm. So, so that uh, prevents the cables from twisting and everything and uh, really reduces uh, a lot of the uh, little hassles with the mounts. So that's kind of what, what I intend to do uh, as well. Um, He was trying to convince me to get the uh, 11 inch green. I think I'll be doing good to get this on a pier and in a, in a pretty minimal um, shelter to say an observatory. I think it's getting maybe a bit ahead of myself. I was talking to my, my builder and, and getting some ideas from him. And uh, hopefully by this time or hopefully by the time we get into the fall next year, I'll, I'll have, uh, you know, a little shelter of, of some sort for, for my, uh, for my gear to be set up and ready to go. So, yeah, thanks for the emails, Wade. I, I do really appreciate it. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, had, uh, email. Oh, sorry. Do you have something else to say, Shane? Nope. Nope. Okay. Had an email there from Richard and, uh, he had, uh, you know. Had a few show topic ideas. I think Richard writes Gentlemen, as a relative newcomer to your uh, excellent uh, website, what I find I like to be able to go, or what I like to be able to do is uh, go back into your archive to listen and view each podcast, show notes, and diagrams in sequence find this impossible to do however uh, what am i doing incorrectly i have mentioned this problem to several men- members in my local astronomy society and i'll report the same problem so it's not just me this makes me nervous because that means that there's several people in his club listening um <laughs> thanks for that <laughs> and then uh your collection uh, archive is too potentially useful not to be accessible is there an idiot's guide or a secret technique that i haven't found Um, If so, I apologize. Keep up the great work and thank you for sharing your interest and expertise. Very best wishes to you both. Um, Richard, we actually had a couple um, emails like that, I think, in the past while about trying to navigate the uh, show notes and the archive. And I think one thing we should mention first, and I think you provided some pretty good guidance to the others, um, (laughs) is that when we began all this, we didn't think we'd be doing 307 shows. So so people need to keep that in mind. And then there is just two of us with a pack of gum and some duct tape. So that's uh kind of how we're doing it. But is there is there any sort of advice that people can follow Shane um that you can give on on how to navigate the show notes and all the uh, archive episodes?
1: Yeah, it's uh admittedly it's not uh the most intuitive website for digging into the archive. Um, we just, we're not web designers. We just use this templated website from WordPress, but you know, it, it functions and it serves our purposes. Um, if you are looking for the archive, it is available. Um, now at the top of the page, um, so again, the website is actualastronomy.com. and at the very top of the website, uh, there is a link that says blog. And if you go there, uh, you will have access to all of the show notes that we've ever posted. And, uh, uh. Um, I don't know how many are there in total. One thing to keep in mind is we really started posting show notes around episode 100. So prior to that, uh, there's nothing to be found. Um, And then the other thing to keep in mind is we don't post show notes for every episode. Um, The only The only episodes where we do this is the monthly uh, objects to observe episode and then the occasional other random episode where maybe we have a guest speaker or, you know, if there's a presentation that we've referenced, um, you know, we do try to post that or there's been uh, a few episodes where we talk about like photographs. So we'll put those up there. Um, so, you know, check it out if you're interested, certainly uh, a lot of information there. Um, and some of it is still relevant. Some of it might be a little stale, uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, objects to observe in December of 2021 may not be that relevant anymore,
0: <laughs> but yeah. uh, anyway, it's all there. Yeah, I do. Uh, we do have show notes for virtually every episode. I think probably like 99% of them, it's just probably most of them maybe it's not going to be what people are thinking. And then there's even whole episodes where we made up show notes and then we didn't use the show notes. We just talked about something else. Well, yeah. And often
1: the show notes aren't detailed to
0: the level that we're talking at. It might be a few bullets of, uh, Hey Shane, talk about this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Did you observe anything last week? You know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. you're Yeah. You're not going to get like, um, you know, if Shane said he was oh testing out my new TSA 102 and using the side piece and that, like that, is not going to be in the show notes. There's not going to be any photographs or, yeah, it would be amazing. You know, and I think um, it's it's good to circle back as well to let people know that when we first were doing the podcast, whenever it was, uh, ten or eleven years ago now, Shane, I can't remember, but we did it in that way where we were spending a lot more time on the show notes and they became sort of um the focus of the show and 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 we never had as many people listening and it was very difficult to produce as many shows so and it kind of killed the the podcast in a way is that sort of a fair way to characterize it
1: yeah yeah that was one of the aspects it just made it a a lot of effort um so you know we're going a little simpler this time to reduce some of that effort and just focus on putting out content who knows maybe with you know chat gpt and all of these ai bots that would be cool maybe we can get get an ai bot to summarize an episode or or create notes for us who knows i'm not sure
0: yeah, it's kind of like we're 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 sort of going downstream, and the podcast is carrying us in the canoe, but we've got no oars and no mechanism for steering, and we're just kind of like sitting there having a beer, right, and uh, having a chat. I mean, this kind of is what it, like, and then yeah. by doing it that way, though, we can do two shows a week. But if uh, yeah, I think if if we were to try to turn those in, like that, the first time we did it. You know I was making a whole separate web page every single time we did a show, and it had detailed photos and charts and all that kind of stuff. and it was re like it was a lot of work. I think it looked pretty cool, but we struggled to put out whatever it was seven episodes a year. and uh we do more episodes a month now <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. exactly. But uh yeah, if somebody wants to take it on though, I do have all the show notes, but I, I don't think you're gonna find much there. And we need someone following around us with video cameras and that too. All right. Um Bill wrote us, do you want to read? Uh, Bill sent us a nice, nice note there. Do you want to Yeah? See? He said, uh, great
1: show, guys. It was fun to listen to. Um, I'm not sure which show does he get it He's
0: or... referring to the double episode live episode ah. of the KW Center. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. 300 and 301. Um, so ironically, while listening to the first episode the other night with Ellen talking about comets, I was in the middle of my 13th observation of E3ZTF comet. Not really sure off the top of my head how many sketches I've done as of, as after a while, I was doing multiple views. Once it got in the same wide field view of Mars and then Aldebaran, uh, saw it on two different nights with Mars and three with it passing Aldebaran. One had the open cluster NGC 1647 in the same field of view. On one occasion, I, or sorry, on one occasion, also, I observed it with my 20 inch crazy detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, I listened to the second episode, which had Marie, or yeah, Marie talking about uh, the moon while I was on my way to drop off a sky and telescope mirror reverse moon map to somebody who's working on their RASC. Isabel Williamson Lunar Observing Program. I will Uh, mop. uh yeah. <laughs> so it's quite the acronym. Uh recently I'd loaned her uh some better eyepieces and diagonal to help her get the magnifications she would need. Uh she was used to a correct view diagonal, so I thought the map might help uh might help using a regular one. I find it interesting how uh with both episodes I was doing something that linked to them. Uh, Like I said, they were fun episodes. The podcast is maturing nicely.
0: Bill. Thanks, Bill. Glad you enjoyed the uh, doubleheader show. Um, Bill is, you know, we just uh, did the uh, conversation or just had a conversation with Alistair Ling and like Alistair, Bill is also one of those um, mentors of other people and, uh, you know, really helping out a lot of different folks in a lot of different ways and certainly has given us a lot of support and been on the show in the past and Uh, yeah, hopefully you can get some more observing in. Maybe uh, we can arrange to have Bill on the show in a future show. It's always uh, really a lot of fun to chat with him. See what he's up to with the big scope.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love hearing about big aperture observing. It uh, helps me to live
0: vicariously through them. Good stuff. Fred had a question. Uh, Fred writes, hi, Chris and Shane. In a recent episode, I think it was about eyepieces. You mentioned a term for an eyepiece set, question mark. Uh, that made it so you didn't have to readjust the focus every time you swapped out eyepieces. Do you remember the term you used? And do you have a brand model of telescope eyepieces that I might research? Thanks, Fred. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Very good email. Um, and what we would be talking about there is a uh, parafocal eyepieces. Um, parafocal means you... You know, I guess the advertisement would say you don't have to refocus. The reality is you might have to just give a slight nudge on the focuser just to get it crisp, but they're usually very close, if not bang on. And, um, not all eyepieces are parafocal. So you do have to do a little bit of research. Um, you know, I think a lot of the Teleview eyepieces have some parafocal capabilities amongst them, but not all, um, trying
0: to think offhand, the beta Morpheus might
1: be parafocal. I'm
0: not sure. Um, the, I do know the Pentax XW in the shorter focal lengths are parafocal.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. We're extremely um,
0: close anyway.
1: Yeah. It, it is a very handy feature, especially when you're um, getting into some high magnification. I find that's when it really pays off mm-hmm. um, because uh, I find it easier to get a real crisp focus at a lower power um, but sometimes at a higher magnification, it's harder to get, you know, pinpoint crisp uh, stars because you're also magnifying, you know, all of the seeing issues or conditions that may or may not be assisting you. And um, uh, having parafocal at those high powers is just a real handy
0: thing. You can make them parafocal mm-hmm. and I'll tell people how to do this, but it comes with a warning. <laughs> <laughs> so you can buy things called parafocalizing rings. And they're not that expensive. I forget what I paid for my set. It's like I don't know twenty bucks or something. So that's that's not the thing. You can get these things. The problem is this: if you've got multiple telescopes, and so the way a parafocalizing ring. Do you have any of these, Shane? No, I don't. I I'd read about them for a long time, and I needed to get uh, at least one for my Teleview twenty-two Nagler because I find like I find like the. Nagler's and the Pentax couldn't be more far apart on the uh, on the focal plane, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to uh, bring it up higher to be closer to where the uh, where the Pentax are. It's not exactly in the same spot as the Pentax, but it's close enough because I was. I, I don't want to get into all this, but there's other complicating factors. So I put a parafocalizing ring on it. As where the problem comes in. So because I did that, it's now very close to where the Pentax are. However, the Pentax are just at the inside or just at focus in, for example, my Takahashi FS60. And where I had to put the ring on the 22 Nagler is just um, just outside of that. And because of that, I can't focus the 22 Nagler in my FS60. So it works in some of my telescopes and it doesn't work in... Other telescopes that I have. So although you're making the eyepieces parafocal, uh, you could in, in inadvertently actually place an eyepiece just outside of focus. So like the 22 Nagler is just outside of focus. Like Shane was saying, you might have to do just a little bit of an adjustment when you put it in the focuser. Absolutely. It's really close, but it's just enough out of focus that, and I can't do it without adjusting Um, the band so much so that it won't work in the telescope that I bought the 22 Nagler for. So Mm -hmm. having parafocalized eyepieces are great to a point insofar as you are using only one, or maybe you're lucky enough to have a couple scopes that they will come to focus in, but you could end up modifying them using those parafocalizing rings such that it it does create another obstacle for you. So, for example, what I should do is go back and just tweak that one a little bit, but then it's like, again, it's not going to work as well in the scope that I bought the 22 Nagler for <laughs> yeah then now the yeah. solution here of course is to buy another 22 nagler i'm not oh dead. yeah that's easy yeah there there you go so so yeah so parafocalized eyepieces are good it's just um not necessarily going to be the uh the best solution unfortunately yeah yeah for sure ryan wrote us an email do you want to uh, take a read of his
1: Sure. Um, Ryan said, I really enjoyed the show about DSCs, so digital setting circles today. Uh, I had a question about mounting my AT72ED. Currently, I have it mounted on a TS Optics equivalent of a StellarView M1 mount. And in order to balance it, I had to buy a longer dovetail and mount it closer to the diagonal. This works when I rotate the focuser to give enough room, but I'm wondering if something like the AZ-5 would solve this problem. I've read on CN, so Cloudy Nights, that balancing these small refractors can be an issue. Uh, would I still have the same balance issues with the clutches and slow mo controls of the AZ5? Uh, thanks for any advice. What do you think, Chris?
0: Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Thanks for for the email. Appreciate it. Um, and I did reply. I I actually bought the AZ5, okay. and and did use it. I I then gifted it to my my nephews. They they are still using it. I think it's a really good scope. Um, for beginner or a really good um, mount more for beginners because it's very forgiving in that balance point. That said for Ryan, I, I wouldn't recommend going to it because he already owns an as good or possibly in some ways a somewhat better mount in, in this sort of stellar view, uh, M one type mount from uh, telescope, uh, service optics. And, the, the solution to his problem, he's gotten most of the way there, but one thing people might not be aware of is you can actually put standoff, I don't know what they're called, standoff brackets, standoff adapters, whatever, between your dovetail plate and your rings. This is something a lot of people aren't as familiar with. They're not as popular outside. I think imagers must use them a lot because it seems like they're more available now. And what uh, what you can do is simply put these spacers in between your two rings and the dovetail bar and then that is going to add on the uh the necessary distance shooting in order to uh, make sure the the focuser isn't contacting the plate and that's really all that needs to be done there the reason why i wouldn't recommend the az5 to to ryan i and i think the az5 is is a is an excellent um very affordable um altitude azimuth mount is is that it's it's a little bit bigger and heavier. And so he's using a 72 ED, which is a really super small and portable telescope, and it would work great on that mount. It's just he's he's using it as a secondary or tertiary scope, I think. So portability is is paramount for him. Otherwise, he would just bring out the bigger telescope. And that AZ5 is is a fairly hefty uh, piece of gear. And uh, and as well, I like the fact that with the smaller mount, he's just optimizing his grab and go capabilities with the uh, AT uh, seventy two. Also, like the Stellarview View M one mount, I think is a little bit more advanced, and then you're to be a little bit more accustomed to balancing a telescope and how an AZ mount works, um, or altitude, and the zemuth mount works. And and I think Ryan already is familiar with that, so. Um, I just think that it, it that uh, particular mount and that scope are are a better combination and and that's what I would would wish to have over that uh that scope on the AZ5. But if somebody was just starting out um and they weren't looking for that optimal grab and go, maybe that's going to be their only scope. Um, it works great. My nephews, uh, I had gifted them an 80 millimeter F five and, uh, we were using it over the holidays for an evening and it's great. It's very, very stable. And it was really great because as we were trading views and they they were really good around the telescope, I don't think anybody kicked it or anything, but if, if you were working with, um, you know, people who maybe weren't as accustomed to being around telescopes and that, and they they kicked it or something. It's it's not really going to move or budge. Whereas the lighter setups, you're really gonna you're really gonna knock yourself off off the target. But uh, anyway, that's sort of my thoughts on that. Shane, do you have any thoughts on that one? Um, just a general comment about telescope
1: balance. Um, it, it it really is important if you want maximum stability and um, kind of ease of movement on any of the axis. Um, having having it well balanced is essential. Um, it'll just be a better experience. You'll have less vibration. Uh, moving it around will be better. Um, and other ways to achieve this, sometimes you can devise your own counterbalance system so that you're able to offset, you know, the say the 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 heavy point of the telescope, which is usually the eyepiece side with a refractor. Um, so you know, try counterbalancing or try using lighter accessories uh to achieve balance on a mount because it certainly can be challenging with these smaller apertures, like um my little 61 millimeter William Optic when I had that. Um, putting a two-inch eyepiece on there with such a small telescope really was challenging to balance. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, one of my options was to not use the 31 millimeter Nagler, but to use a 24 millimeter <laughs> pan optic, and then balance was simple, you know, at that point. So there's a few ways to approach it. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess whatever makes sense for your particular situation. Um, you know, you have options, so, you know, it's, it's definitely solvable.
0: Chris wrote us an email. Chris writes, hi guys, a quick report from last night. I took my 60 millimeter refractor out for a quick look look at the Venus and Jupiter gathering. The seeing was forecasted as bad, and it was. Coupled with the evening star being in the west, Venus was flickering even to the unaided eye. It was beautiful, clear sky. There's something about March evening sky that I love. I agree. I love the March evening sky. Don't Mm -hmm. you, Shane?
1: Well, yeah, because it's for us, it's starting to warm up a little bit, but it's still getting dark early enough that you can get out in the evening and, and do a little bit of astronomy.
0: Yeah. Chris goes on to say, I was able to get both planets in one field of view using a 32 millimeter plotosal, which gives 4.4 degree true field of view in the little 60 millimeter. He was able to pick up the Galilean moons and detect some color variations on Jupiter. Venus was a blaring mess as usual for me. (laughs) And I, and I agree, like my observation is, is uh, virtually identical. I, I couldn't see any real detail on Jupiter. Not that I put any real power on and uh and venus was yeah it was just wild he goes on to say i have astigmatism even with the uh, teleview corrector must be using the astigmatism corrector there um he could not get and get it to tighten up completely and i was exactly the same with you on that one i couldn't get it tight either i think it was just bad seeing uh further magnification on the pair were uh, no good um and and the low altitude and the bad seeing uh, definitely made it worse More interesting, Chris goes on to say, was that uh, on the moon, there were three on on our moon, there were three or four peaks that were tall enough to poke through the blackness and to be illuminated by sunlight. The effect was super cool, crisp white dots with the illusion of floating in space, not connected to the surface below. I texted a friend who I guess correctly was also observing Jupiter and Venus. He then took a look at the moon and even some of the other club members responded to my alert report at the same enthusiasm for these little white specks poking out of the darkness that, uh, that Chris first observed. Uh, and he asked have I seen this before? Have we seen this before? Shane, have you seen that before the, the white, uh, mountain peaks sort of poking out in amongst the darkness on the moon? Well, oh, that's a great question. I th-
1: think I have, but I'm not, I, I absolutely suck at logging any of my lunar observations. So so I don't have a reference to go back and check. So I'll I'll put a question mark there. I'm not hundred percent sure, but I think I did.
0: I, I've definitely seen something similar, if if not the same thing that that Chris and them uh observed, but um... Yeah. Not, and not to take away from, from the observation. It is, uh, it is a lot of fun. Uh, I did mention like maybe just go back and, and see where the lunar terminator was and take a look, but it's not going to happen every time. So for example, unless I went out right when Chris, um, emailed if, if, or if he had sent me a text alert or something, um, I would have then seen them because I think the moon was in the sky at about the same time though. It might've been really low for us, but if, um, if I waited and say I got an email from him and he, he composed an hour or so later and took me an hour or so to, to get set up to observe or something like that, then I wouldn't see them because the lunar, term, lunar Terminator would have just moved so much. So seeing that is, uh, is a great event. And it's it's something to uh, to really enjoy because the next time the moon comes around, you're probably not going to be in the right place at the right time to see uh, that same exact uh, vibration, which which caused you to be able to see those peaks. So it is it is neat neat observation. I've been lucky enough to see that before, but you, you just have to be in the right place at the right time in order to see it.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, which
0: is. Uh, one of the intriguing aspects to me anyway, for
1: observing the moon is, is just that very dynamic terminator. It's constantly changing how features appear and the right place and the right time is, is key for lunar observing. Thanks, Chris.
0: Always great to hear from you. I have one more email here from, uh, Ben, maybe, uh, maybe Shane, do you want to read sort of the first, uh, half or something? And then I can read the second half. Sure.
1: Uh, so Ben said, hi, Chris and Shane, uh, I woke up this morning to the surprise of a Wednesday episode. Fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. We did that to just coincide with March 1st, uh, and the conjunction. We wanted to make sure people were aware of that. Um, I hope you both, or I hope you are both your break. I'm not sure what, uh, Uh, anyway, my skies have been absolute rubbish and solid cloud cover day and night and monsoon rain since the beginning of December. When my night skies are cloudy, I typically manage some solar observing during the day. The sky gods have offered me nothing in the past three months though. So what is an astronomer to do when there's nothing to see? Buy more gear. (laughs) I like that. Uh, that is exactly what I've done as I've tried to resolve a few niggling issues I have in my observing. I have already committed myself to what I think is the solution. I'd love to let, or I'd love you to let me know if you think I will be a happier astronomer, or just share a story of similar dilemmas you have faced. Um, over the past few months, I've gone about trying to find that scope that can do it all. Uh, this project has come about due to a few things. So number one here, um, my minister of war and finance in brackets, wife, uh, has yet to appreciate the diversity of a kit. Uh, one needs to be a satisfied astronomer. She claims I have too many scopes. This is, this claim is completely unfounded as <laughs> she can't identify the benchmark of which I'm being measured against. So number one, uh, I need to appear to be thinning the herd, uh, on to the next bullet. Uh, I typically observe in short bursts of five to 10 minute blocks. Uh, I have young kids, dogs, and all of the trappings one finds themselves amongst in their forties and keeps me so busy. I can often be found wandering around the backyard with binoculars in hand and a crick neck while screams of dad uh, bellow from the house around dinner and bedtime. And me cursing under my breath because I can't even get five minutes. So number two, it has to be a quick setup. It would be nice if it could be manual for super quick observing or could track so I could walk away and return to the eyepiece. Uh, next one here. I have a six-inch uh, Celestron uh, Castor on a simple tripod that I use for solar observing. I also use it for terrestrial uses, as we can be see as we can see for miles from our deck. So number three, uh, it must allow me to do solar observing and allow me to pan the horizon manually. Um, and then the next one here. He also has a five-inch Sky Skywatch, a uh, Sky One Thirty P manual tabletop. Uh, that I use all of the time, just sitting on the ground. Uh, But as the years go by, I now make more sounds than an orchestra. When I get back up, I have a 12 inch mead light bridge that looks uh, tireder than I feel. The bass has deteriorated so much that it's really impossible to use. I love this scope and for years have dearly wanted to restore it, but life does not allow such luxuries. So number four, uh, the right set up could allow me to overcome issues with my current scopes and make observing more enjoyable. And I would appear to be thinning the herd. Maybe I'll do one more, Chris, and then I'll just turn it over to you. Sounds good. Okay. Um, So I have become an astronomy dad. When my family goes camping with all of our friends, I will often throw the five inch 130 P in so that I can show all of the kids, the gems of the night sky, manual daubs and kids equal frustration though. Uh, they find it hard to get their eye aligned to the eyepiece. They bump it, and by the time 15 kids file through, the object has moved out of the field of view. This leaves me continually elbowing kids off the eyepiece and them losing interest. Uh, so number five, the height must be and low enough for kids five, uh, five to 12 years old to use, and must track objects. So we're getting we're getting a lot of requirements, Chris. Mm. I'll pass the
0: baton to you here. I hate legging out batteries, so it must have built-in batteries. I love observing the planets and deep sky objects as well. It must be able to pull in detail on the planets and show those brighter objects. And he also has a 16. He says, I have a custom 16 and 20-inch daub in the stable, so you already own a lot of a lot of big reflectors. Why doesn't this guy live next door to me? Yeah, Uh, It doesn't have to be a scope when time and conditions align. Um, I have that covered, like it doesn't have to be a dual scope, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, this is diversity of needs, the scope and tall to- and a taller to fill. I'm sure all astronomers uh, have gone through that at some point. Yeah, he's done a lot of thinking during his celestial lockdown, and decided to buy a Celestron evolution mount and combine it with a C6, uh, his, his, uh, basically C6 schmidt Cassegrain because uh, it's adjustable for the kid's height and inbuilt battery and Wi-Fi, designed to be picked up and moved plenty of spots uh to keep eyepieces away from the kids uh clutches on the access loud manually slewed um yeah it comes with a reducer so you can take it to f63 for wide field deep sky you can also combine it with his eight inch midcastle uh there's some compromises there he said but i i think that's a pretty good I think that's a pretty good compromise there. He's he's buying a mount that's going to work with the telescopes he already has. That seems reasonable. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I think that's a great way to go. Um, I think it checks just about all of these bullets uh, that he listed here. So
0: yeah, I yeah. think that's really good. Yeah. You know, you'd asked, you know, our opinion and, uh, you know, had already kind of headed on order and said, Oh, I should ask you guys first. No, that's not necessary. We appreciate, we appreciate what people ask. I think it's, it's interesting and and entertaining for the listeners, but you know, I think people have to do what, what they're comfortable doing. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the time people will go and, and get something and either learn from it or, uh, or in this case, I, I do think Ben's made a, a pretty good decision to simply get a better mount. I, I mean, you know, clearly I believe in this. Shane, I just bought a brand new mount as well. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. We actually did have a an email from another listener who uh, who was lamenting the fact that we had uh, we had gotten him into buying some more gear, and then uh, I I wrote and said, yeah, I just I just bought another piece of gear from another listener too. So I'm in the same
1: boat. Yep. It happens. And, uh, we, we had some YouTube comments too, on that Takahashi episode of people now wanting to buy a four inch tack. So (laughs) we, uh, we do need to maybe put a warning on here that your bank account may shrink as you listen to some of these episodes.
0: I, I think it's good advice. I was talking to one of the listeners about this and, you know, it's, it would be, I think at this time, Shane, it would be impossible f- for us to read every listener email. So we try to give a good, a good smattering from, uh, from different folks and some of the same folks as well. who write us or that we've had a lot of correspondence with, but you know, I, I was saying to, to one of the listeners that it, it makes a lot of sense to go and buy that, that Takahashi or, or William optics Floristar or whatever it is that, that they might have uh, available or used or be looking to buy new um simply because you can churn through a lot of gear you know only to get to that point you know and i think of myself even as as a as a good uh, uh a good example of that where you know, and I haven't even bought that much gear, but I bought, I had an 80 millimeter ST80 and then I bought, uh, an ED scope, uh, that was 80 millimeters and it worked great on every target except for Mars and I'm a Mars observer. So that's not a good fit for me. I bought a, uh, uh, six inch max which is a beautiful, uh, beautifully designed planetary optical scope. Um, but it doesn't work as well here in the cold weather, um, you know, and, and I think, you know, I bought those few scopes over many years. Um, if you look at other observers, some of them will churn through that much or more in in six months now, it seems I hear from people that are buying a lot of gear. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that, um, you know, if you kind of go with that Takahashi uh, earlier on, then it's going to provide you with those planetary views that maybe you're you're looking for. I think, I think those planetary views are worth it in those instruments, uh, unless you can get that custom eight inch F seven or eight inch F eight Dobsonian with sort of that really beautiful mirror in it. And those, those can certainly provide, um, you know, exquisite views of the planets as well. It, it all just depends on the observer maybe and and what's available and, and what people are interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, Shane, that's, uh, that's a slightly shorter episode. Anything to, uh, to add on these um, on, on this, our 307th show? Nothing more, sir. Well, thank you, Shane. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to support the Actual Astronomy Podcast, you can find us on Patreon. We also love getting your emails, observations, and questions. You can send those to actualastronomy at gmail.com.
1: Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.